Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 163rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Michael Genoy. Michael is a financial advisor and program manager for SoCal Wealth Management, a hybrid advisory firm in Southern California that oversees $260 million of assets under management for nearly 1,800 clients. What's unique about Michael, though, is the way he's been able to build SoCal Wealth Management under the umbrella of the Credit Union of Southern California, which itself has nearly $1.6 billion of credit union assets, serving almost 120,000 members across 18 branch locations, and feeds a continuous flow of prospect referrals to Michael's advisory firm. With the caveat that as part of the credit union, they have to take every client that is referred to them. In this episode, we talk in depth about the unique structure of credit unions as customer, or rather member-owned financial institutions, and how member-centric culture of credit unions can be so complementary to the client-centric culture of advisory firms. The way that Credit Union of Southern California structures its referral program and trains its member service officers across branches to identify members with applying needs and steer them towards SoCal Wealth Management at a pace of nearly three new clients per week. And the way SoCal Wealth structures its offering on the LPL platform to keep it efficient enough to run this kind of high-volume client business. We also talk about the way that Michael's firm uses an internal team member supporting the financial advisors to both set initial appointments with referrals, but also to help screen them to ensure they're a fit for the firm in the first place. SoCal Wealth's financial planning process and their two-meeting approach that delivers the plan interactively with MoneyGuide Pro not only to engage clients, but to save significant time in the plan preparation process. And the way that Michael's firm segments clients for ongoing services, giving the incredible range of who the credit union refers to them from multimillionaires to those opening their first IRA. And be certain to listen to the end, where Michael shares how to figure out which credit unions have the right client-centric culture and which are just offering wealth management as a product-based profit center, the typical payouts that advisors receive in a credit union environment in exchange for having to do little or no business development, and the unique structure that SoCal Wealth has built for its advisors where clients that are referred through the credit union must stay behind, but advisors can still have their own personal clients that the advisor can take with them if they leave in the future. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Genoway. Welcome, Michael Genoa, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. I'm excited for today's podcast discussion of what I think is a, a little bit different of a, an angle or a path or a journey in the financial advisor world than what we typically cover, which is a lot about you know, people that go off on their own and, and hang their own independent shingle. And, and certainly there are virtues to going out and, and kind of building your own client base as an independent. But there's also a lot of caveats, one of the biggest of which is you got to find all your own clients from scratch because when you're on your own as an independent, there ain't really no one to hand them to you. You got to go do that and, and beat the bushes as it were from scratch, which is difficult for a lot of people. I mean, at the end of the day, the advisor world is an incredibly high attrition rate, incredibly high failure rate of just 
people that go out to do that and they fail and don't succeed as an advisor and has nothing to do with their knowledge, their ability, their quality of advice, their ability to help clients. And just drives entirely from couldn't find enough clients to would pay me before I ran out of available savings and had to go back and do something else. And so I know you have spent a good portion of your career building in the realm of credit unions and, and under the umbrella of of a credit union and a financial institution, which is a very different, I think, path into becoming a financial advisor and building an advisory practice and, and one that has itself changed, I think, as the bank and credit union channel has sort of shifted its views around the advice business and the wealth management business. And so I'm, I'm excited today to just talk about what this looks like in the pathway of trying to enter financial services through the bank and credit union environment, as opposed to either the like traditional wirehouse or, or insurance agency, you know, here's a desk and a phone, go call people, or some of the independent channels are like, hey, you can launch your own firm and do whatever you want. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes leaving people floundering at the launch. So like, what brought you to the credit union channel in the first place as a way to, to build a career as an advisor? Yeah, and you, you kind of touched upon it already. The, the big advantage is that not only are you going to be getting prospects, but they're prospects who are already wanting to work with you versus somebody else because you're already a part of the institution that they trust. So it's, it's really easy to start building up your book of business when you have people coming to you with that mindset, ready to do business, ready to start talking to you about, the, about their finances. So that was, that was the part that was really compelling about the credit union because before I was there, I was at Merrill Lynch where it was all on my own and I, w- I would try everything. I did cold calls. I did trade shows. I had booths at 5Ks and marathons, just trying to see as many people as possible and open those conversations up. But when you're at the institution that's actively soliciting people to come see you to talk about how you can make an impact in their lives financially, it's a big leg up. It's an interesting phenomenon to me as well that like particularly what this looks like in credit unions, because I, I, I sort of frame this as banks and credit unions are sort of conceptually like the places where we deposit our cash and our paychecks and have checking accounts and savings accounts. But to be fair, like there really is, I think, a distinction out there between banks and credit unions in particular that banks, I think, get treated a little bit more transactionally. You know, you can often feel sort of the for-profit motive of a lot of banks. Credit unions classically were for the community that they serve. They usually don't call their people customers. They call them members. And there's just, I think, often a different level of trust maybe between members and their credit unions than customers and their banks that really probably builds up that fast launch a little bit more as, as you've highlighted of you know, you like the people want who come in, you know, you're a part of this credit union that they already trust. And so that trust is endowed on you. And like, they actually usually want to talk to you mm-hmm. and have the conversation. <laughs> like you're not dragging it out of them. They come and seek you because they trust the credit union and the institution and you're a representative of that institution. And then you get to do the financial planning work that you're going to do. 
Exactly. And there's there's a bit of loyalty and almost pride in it too. I've had members come. And first of all, my credit union that I work with is very regional, Southern California. And I've had members come in who have said, look at my member number. It's only got four digits. It's only got five digits. And now we're up to six and seven and eight to show that they've been with the credit union for so long that you have some pride in that. That they've they almost feel like some ownership that they've helped build up the institution to what it is today. Yeah, it reminds me. There's a I, I think a similar effect out there for CFP certificates as well. That CFP board the same done same thing. It's issued the numbers sequentially. So you you have you have five digit CFP certificates. You have some four digit ones every now and then. You see some three digit folks, which at this point probably means you've been in the business for almost forty years. That. You know, similarly, like when when people get bound and like bonded to something and stick with it for a long time, like we get a lot of sort of that pride of ownership of like I've been a part of this thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love that you get that off the the credit union members as well. Like I was one of the first ten thousand. You know, I've got a four digit member number. Exactly. Yeah, and and you kind of touched upon this too. Like not all institutions are created equal. You look at big banks, and they're going to operate in a certain you know, maybe push towards advisory and kind of siloed into different segments of their platform. Whereas you work with a smaller institution and they're going to treat you a lot more like they don't have the resources to kind of micromanage. They let you run a business the way that you would want to run it. And having that flexibility will help you take charge of your of your business. That's a very interesting point. So kind of the large Large financial institutions tend to be more, I guess, hierarchical because that's just part of what happens with size. Smaller institutions are are at least more likely to to have a little more flexibility for some level of entrepreneurship and ownership. Obviously, you're still within an institution, but allowing a little more flexibility than like, here's the cookie cutter lines and boxes of what we allow based on what the 47 lawyers told us we're allowed to do. Exactly. You know, you go to a large bank or credit union, they're going to have training programs and and different types of guidance and guidelines that you have to follow when you're maybe a solo practitioner inside a small regional credit union. They're just going to have you as a place for members to go if they need financial advice. There isn't a whole lot of other structure outside of that to start because if it's a brand new program, they're not even really going to understand if it's going to be successful or not. So they, they kind of give you the ability to just try and be profitable and give good service to the members because that's always number one. And then after that, start building it up into maybe an enterprise. So for folks that are maybe less familiar, can you just give some context or background, I guess, to credit unions in general and your credit union in particular? Because I, I find sort of regionally, like there are folks that are in areas that have a lot of credit unions. They're very, very familiar with them and, and may even be a part of one. And then other parts of the country, like credit unions just aren't a thing as much and they're not around. And like you you may have literally never seen one or interacted one or have any context as to how this is different than any other bank where you might keep your checking account and savings account and pause your paychecks. So can you talk a little bit about Credit unions overall is distinguished from traditional banks and then what your credit union looks like in particular. 
Yeah, and I fall into that first category. I didn't really know much about credit unions until I started working for one. I always had banking institutions and Merrill Lynch and Bank of America before I joined up with my credit union, which is Credit Union of Southern California. And we're community-based. So you to become a member, you have to live, work, or worship in the Southern California area. So there is usually some level of qualification. You know, if you're a credit union that works with only aerospace employees, you have to be an aerospace employee to become part of it. So there are some limitations there, but most are much more flexible today than they have been in the past. And that's because a lot of credit unions are consolidating. There was quite a few consolidations in the industry to to have more scale, have more size. And because of that, they are becoming more community-based. And the big push, the difference of the credit unions is we're, we're profitable, but we're not for profit. So we're here to serve the best interests of our clients, or customers, or in our case, what we call members. And the members are owners of the credit union. So if you have a savings account with us, you're technically an owner of, of the credit union. And so we, we approach service and experience from that perspective of that we're we're working for the the people who own us and when we make decisions on should we do plan a or initiative b we say is this going to help our members have a better life we we have a saying at our credit union that we're here to build better lives and that's what we we strive for when we put together our business plans and our new products and services that we're that we're going to offer so how does it work with members being owners of the credit union in practice? I mean, it's like I, I open up a I open up a checking account and I get some shares of, of stock that are going to pay me dividends. Like how does how does that work in practice for for credit unions? Yeah, it, it's it's not that formal. So instead of having a savings account, we call them shares. So you're instead of having like stock shares, these are your credit union shares, and that is your technical ownership of the of the credit union. So, and I'm not sure if that's the the case everywhere, but I believe that you have to have a savings account or a shares account with a credit union to be a member of it. Okay, and then do I get some kind of dollars or return like on my investment, or is it just because we're not paying profits out to shareholders, like our, our savings accounts are going to have better yields because we can just push all the dollars back. That, that's exactly what it is. The, the interest rates are the returns to our members. Okay. Interesting. And does that happen in practice for you? That like, if you look at your yields relative to the yields of other uh, banks in your area, like, are you actually able to pay a higher rate because of this shift in, you know, we're not taking, we're not profiting off you and sending it to Wall Street shareholders. We may profit off you, but we put it back to you in the higher yields of your accounts. It, it kind of depends. I've seen it would fluctuate year to year with changes in the business cycle and changes in interest rates. So I've seen it be above market. I've seen it be below market. And, you know, if the credit union, let's say credit unions trying to expand their offering of auto loans and they need to put some capital into that. Maybe their earnings to investors, their interest rates are going to be lower. Whereas if a credit union was not going to do that, they would maybe be able to pay out a higher rate. 
So I guess sure, like kind of at any business in the aggregate, you take your profits, you decide what you're going to reinvest. The remaining of the remainder of the profits go out to shareholders. So if you're having a bigger reinvestment year, you have less to share with your shareholders, or in this case, your shares account. Yeah, it's, it's the exact <laughs> same way to think about it. You know, the other thing is, since it is a not-for-profit organization, the uh, the taxes are are lower or non-existent for for those institutions, which makes it a little easier for them to be competitive with those rates. And and I guess at the end of the day, it it I mean, it strikes me this is similar to the functional ownership structure of of Vanguard as well, which you know, sort of took this to the multi-trillion dollar level of scale. <laughs> but like same functional concept, which is the company is is structured so it's owned by the people who invest in the mutual funds and and the fundamental benefit that you get to that that at least Vanguard has been able to do perhaps better than most is when you're not trying to generate profits that go to external shareholders, you're generating profits where the profits go right back to the people that you're doing business with in the first place, you kind of have an incentive to pay pay better yields and returns or to bring your costs down because it's not like it's not like charging people more gets you more. Like mm-hmm. you, you get more out of them only to give it back to them, which is really not very helpful. So you may as well just make the cost lower and then you help the people you're serving. Oh, and by the way, everybody else shows up as well because now you've got a really good deal with this positive cycle that of paying back the people who invest in you start, starts to build upon. So like just it's it's interesting to me that this structure of you know what essentially are mutually owned companies, you know, this was a dominant structure in financial services in the early 1900s. Like insurance companies were all owned by their policy owners. That's why we called them mutual insurance companies. You know, credit unions got built around this model. Vanguard worked around this model. And then we had this trend in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s where insurance companies demutualized and went and went stockholder. Financial world seems to have shifted more towards banking. You know, most asset managers outside of Vanguard are for-profit entities. And now it almost feels like the pendulum is maybe starting to swing back the other way as we look and, and say, oh, like that structure was actually working pretty well with financial services. Some of those yeah. companies are actually serving their people pretty well. And I'm not thrilled with how some of the shareholder-owned or external shareholder-owned companies are behaving these days. Just it's it's interesting to see how those cultural differences play out over years and decades. And as as you've noted, like becomes ingrained in the culture of places like credit unions that, you know, at the end of the day, our profits are all going to the members anyway. So we really, really may as well only focus on serving them. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. It's uh, when you're in that mutual structure, you really can't ever take the priority off service. And because of that, it's just snowballed into every initiative, every project, how's this going to better serve the members of the organization? It just always comes back to that. And that's that's a positive thing. Right. It, I mean, it's just the whole, you know, we, there's so much, I think, d- debate and concern out there these days of, you know, the, the challenges of taking care of your customer versus taking care of shareholders because executives and boards have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. And it's like, well, if the people you serve are your shareholders, <laughs> this gets easier. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Much more cleanly aligned, much easier to focus on. So talk to us then about kind of like size and structure of your credit union in particular. Like, I don't even know how credit unions get measured, but like 
who do you serve? What's the base? Like, how does that, what does that look like in credit union world? Yeah. So uh, we're, we're open to the community. So we look at anyone who is in Southern California, that's, that's open to us. But in terms of what the credit union looks like, I started credit union in Southern California about 11 years ago and they had about $400 million on deposit. So the grand scheme of the financial world, very small, Mm -hmm. but through mergers and acquisitions and just general growth, the credit union is now up to 1.6 billion in deposits that would, we're, we're getting close to, to midsize now. And then I think they, they assume a credit union is large when it gets above uh, 2 billion or so. So we're, we're knocking on the door of that. And as the credit union has grown, so has the ability to grow the investment program. So the, we, we call ourselves SoCal Wealth Management. Started off as just two advisors. That was myself and my business partner, Ryan. And then from there, we've added on two more advisors. And now we have one in-branch client associate and one virtual client associate. And, and we're growing from there. We're probably going to hire one to two more advisors this year to, to keep scaling up, make sure that we have a nice in-branch presence and also keep our service levels high. And so what is the overall, I guess, like size of the credit union in terms of like how many employees work there or how many branches are there? Like what's the reach overall? Is this like 10 people in one building? Is this a hundred people across a dozen locations? Like how does the overall structure and footprint work? It's, it's changed over the years. Right now we're about 400 employees and we have about 18 branches from Orange County to Los Angeles to the Inland Empire. That's kind of our, our footprint right now. Okay. Because that helps. So when I think about this in just like traditional advisor world, a firm with $1.6 billion of, of AUM in our context is, is probably a firm that's like 30-something employees, give or take a little, maybe 40. You know, often has one location, just kind of serves everyone from there. $1.6 billion in credit union deposits, though, is a is a very different like size scale organization. Like this isn't 40 employees. This is 400 employees. This isn't one location. This is 18 branches. Like this is relative to banking credit union world. Like, as you said, like this, this is a pretty sizable mid-size growing to large enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, this is someone's everyday banking institution. So having more locations for conveniences is very important. Right. So now talk to us a little bit more about the SoCal wealth side. So like the, the as you framed it, like the, the investment program that sits within the credit union. So what does that look like? How does that work? So we're a financial planning first firm, and we are there to help members with anything financial or investment related. So whether that's needing an insurance policy or setting up a financial plan because you want to retire or starting a Roth IRA, those are all things that are our day-to-day type of conversations that we have. Are you also having, I guess, like, like banking conversations as well? Like, are you also talking to people about opening a checking account, opening a savings account and, and that sort of stuff as well. Cause you're anchored in this credit union that, that does banking. No, no, we, we, that's all on the other side of the branches. <laughs> we, okay. we handle just the advisory side. You know, we're, 
we're the Series 766 personnel. When it comes to auto loans and everything else, that's that's on their end. Okay. Okay. So so you may be within the bank, but you don't actually need to wear the the banker hat. There is separate staff that does that. Your SoCal Wealth portion looks more like, I guess what I would otherwise call a traditional advisory firm. So investment account, you know, investment insurance, retirement, those sorts of financial advisor domains, you just happen to live within a banking credit union environment. That's the exact way I think about it. I approach okay. it as we just happen to be a boutique that is inside an institution. Okay. It's interesting to frame it, a boutique that's inside an institution. Yeah. Well, because in terms of how we approach things, we we take a, a very much planning approach where, you know, like we said earlier, a lot of institutions, especially larger banks and credit unions, they it's more product or sales oriented. And we don't we don't really approach things that way. It always starts with a with a conversation, finding out what's most important to our members, and then working backwards and building a plan and and then coming with some advice after that. So what does the business model look like for affirming your situation? Like, are you on the are you on the RIA side? Are you on the brokerage side? Are you a, a hybrid structure? How does it work from a business model end, and what sorts of stuff are you ultimately like involved with getting paid for with folks that you work with? Yeah, hybrid was the was the best situation for us because we still have some clientele that needs to do something outside of advisory or, or fee-only business. Sometimes people come to us and they just want a better rate on their their deposits. And we could look at things like the, the fixed annuity world for someone who's not quite, I'd call like an investment grade investor, but they're just trying to do better on some long-term savings. So things like that still exist that we use. But the majority of our business is advisory accounts and 85% of our business is actually qualified. So when when it comes to having conversations with people, a lot of times it revolves around getting to and getting through retirement. Okay. Which again, I kind of similar to conversations a lot of us would have in financial advisor world, just they're coming to you through an anchor to a credit union to have similar conversations. I've got a 401k plan to roll over. I've got dollars I need to invest. Uh, I'm queuing up for retirement, but I have no idea if I'm invested properly or you know if I can afford retirement or how much I can reasonably spend in retirement. And so all those conversations then come to the fore. Yeah. And the one conversation that kind of works backwards from that happens a lot. Like someone will be referred to me and they'll have somebody that matured in a CD and they're referred because they're looking for a better rate. And I'll talk to that person and find out, well, the most important things in their life is making sure that they have income replacement in retirement to make sure that their family's taken care of if there something happens to them. And so a lot of times we don't even really invest the money that's on deposit at the credit union. We, we look at that 401k or that 403b or that IRA that they've been trying to manage themselves that hasn't done so well. And bring that in and start start managing that. And I've got to ask: this is there is there weirdness if you actually like literally are pulling money off deposit? You know, if this is a credit union that's primarily still first and foremost in the credit union banking business, we've got deposits and we lend them, and and you're out there in this wealth management division, like 
pulling out their deposits and investing or pulling out their deposits and you know moving you know fixed CDs to fixed annuities for clients that can get a better yield. Like, does this upset someone on the credit union side? That's like, hey guys, appreciate you growing the business, but can you not like disintermediate our credit union in the process? <laughs> we had we had one moment like that. I think it was 2010 where we were just doing too much of deposits and they're like, we need to start tracking this to make sure we're doing this at a reasonable pace. But after that, since since we have been tracking it and it has been so much money from outside the institution, it hasn't really been a problem at all. But you're, you're right. If, a, if an institution is trying to focus on having retained deposits, you, yeah. you if you have an advisor who's running it off, it could be a problem. Well, and I know there there was a challenge in like late late two thousands, early twenty tens, where when interest rates crashed and and at what point got so low that not only did you not get much of any yield at the bank, but like the bank couldn't even make much yield at the bank because everything was suppressed so low that there were some banks in the in like the early twenty tens that made big pushes into you know quote financial advisor wealth management world. And it was basically like rip out their deposits and get them over into annuity contracts because the few banks actually figured out they literally made more money on the annuities than they did on their own deposits. Uh, so they were trying to push the money out off their books and into the products that were that were actually more profitable for them. Not, I think, a highlight for the world of you know, banking crossing into financial advisor world and some of that now is, has wound down as rates have normalized. But you know, I know there there is some history on that end for at least some institutions that really just kind of looked at this as a profit center, another way to make money off of their deposits. It like it wasn't really about the advice. It was just at the end of the day, like, here's another product we can cross-sell to expand wallet share and make more you know, revenue per deposits because we sound we found some products that are highly profitable to the bank to sell. Yeah, and that's a that's a a call from the leadership of that organization. I remember that time, and we weren't as affected by that. But you know, if a if a CEO of institution is going to make that call and say, "Here's how we're going to review this. We're going to start pushing money into the investments program to get into annuities to make more money," that's that could happen. And yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of advisors at that time that had their best years ever. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the way that we were trying to to run run the business. So you said the business is heavily advisory accounts and practice. So what does this look like now for size of the firm? I don't know if you ultimately measure like based on AUM since it's heavily advisory accounts or GDC since you're doing some annuity or other business as well. Like what is the what is the practice within the credit union look like now for the wealth management portion? Most of the business, about 60% is an advisory and the rest would be still like transactional business. So the way it breaks down is we're about 260 million under management. And we had three of the four advisors converting to advisory last year. So our GDC was about 1.1 million. So it was a little bit of a low point, but now that most of that has been converted, we should be closer to about like 1.7 or so this year and going forward. Okay. So the ultimate like generating 1.7 million from a base of 260 million of assets by whatever combination of advisory fees, a little bit of product that gets sold. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
And then who's the broker dealer that wraps all of this up? Uh, LPL. We, we clear through okay. them. We use them for advisory platforms. We use their open architecture platform and I create model portfolios that we, that we use for the members. Okay. So LPL has the, has the tools, has the tech to such that just let you run your own model portfolios, create your set of models off you on your way as, as clients come in. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things of working at institution is you have to be able to work with scale. And so I know a lot of advisors look to a TAMP for that. I've always wanted to maybe control it a little bit more. So I run the portfolios and then block trade them so that uh, I could update lots of portfolios all at once to make sure everyone's getting the latest updates to their risk and objectives. And that's worked out well. And so what, what software do you actually end up using to do that? Well, in, in terms of the actual rebalancing software, it's proprietary through LPL. Okay. So I don't use any third party for that, that side of the business. Okay. And so the LPL's own home office software lets you set up models, rebalance clients to them, queue up the block trades. That all happens directly off of their platform. Exactly. Yeah. It's all through their, their main ecosystem is called ClientWorks. And all of that is integrated right into ClientWorks. So what does investment management look like for... For clients, like, are you mostly in a brokerage world of mutual funds and C shares? Are you ultimately running this on the advisory side of the platform and like building with no load funds and ETFs and stuff like that? Like, what is the what does the portfolio process look like in practice? Yeah, so most most of the portfolios are going to be no load and, and ETF, probably about two thirds ETF, one third funds. For accounts that don't meet the platform minimum, which is 25000 I actually use a, a white-label robo-advisor called Guided Wealth Portfolios. That's also run through LPL and BlackRock. Okay, that's Guided Portfolios. Was Is that the original future advisor plat- yes. BlackRock platform? Exactly, yeah. So uh, LPL has rebranded that as Guided Wealth Portfolios, and I use that for accounts below that $25,000 minimum. And those clients, I actually make sure that they're aware that they'll eventually graduate as their balances get large enough into a full advisory account. Okay. So this is really for you, like specifically built as as a, a small account, air quote, robo solution, like just what a straightforward model portfolio. What What ultimately then is the difference between what Guide Wealth Portfolios does and what you do in your own if we're all running off model portfolios. Is it just like Guide Wealth is prepackaged portfolios? If you want to make your own custom thing, you have to eventually come over and build your own models and client works? Yeah, ex- exactly. So it's they're, they're set models based on risk tolerance, like you would normally think a robo would have. Okay. And then what, once you get to the level of having an advisory account, we could start being a little bit more creative if, there, if there's certain types of stocks or sectors that you want to own. Right. You know, I could customize that, but you can't. You can't do that beforehand. Right. And then, what does this look like from the from the planning end? Like, are you still going through and doing 
custom financial plans for clients? Are you charging separately for the plans or like, are you even allowed to charge separately for the plans in your structure? What is the, what is the planning side of, of the practice look like? We, we don't charge for plans, but we are allowed to. We actually tell members that being a member, this is your, your member benefit. So once again, we're, we're saying it's the right thing to do to do the plan. We're not going to charge you for it. Because again, you're right back in the world of like, I could also charge you for it and make more money off this. And then you'll mm-hmm. get, then you'll get it back as a, and the share accounts as a member anyway, because <laughs> like, I don't need to make any more profit than I need to make just to run the business and reinvest because that's what happens in a mutual structure. Yeah. And then the, the software that seems to resonate the most with my clients is a money guide pro. So I use that. And we use that to go through all the goal planning and open up all those conversations that we need to have to make sure that the investments are going to match up with what the client really needs. And I'll tell you this, the, the number one goal that people come to me with is just 100% income replacement at retirement. They're just trying to see what they could do. If, if they could just have what they have now retired, they're going to be financially happy. And then it's my job to open up all those other questions like, well, are you going to have more travel to do? Are you going to renovate your home? Are there major type of vehicle purchases that we're looking to do? And kind of show them that there's more to just like saying, I just need to keep my net income, my net income. Right. So how does this work from the perspective of like getting clients and and growing your business? You know, as we'd said earlier, you know, one of the appeals of working within a credit union environment is like they actually trust you because they trust the credit union, you're part of the credit union. And, and so you've got more opportunities to to work with people. But how does that process actually work in practice? Like, are you sitting in credit union branches and people can just come on over if they want? Is there an internal referral system? Do you still have to do your own events and marketing? You just happen to get access to the credit union lists? Like, how do you actually start growing a client base within a credit union environment? And we we do a lot of those things you just mentioned, but the actual effort for it doesn't always come down on the advisor, which is the best part because you know, the advisors need to be meeting with clients and reviewing plans and building plans and doing all that work. So yes, we have an internal referral system. So our staff is trained that if they're meeting with a member and they have, especially like an IRA account that's earning sub 2% in some cases, you know, maybe you should talk to one of the financial advisors and see if this is what's best suited for you. And then if the, if the member says yes, it goes to an internal referral system that pops up as an email to my client associate who does that first outbound call to the member and says, you know, hi, thanks for uh, letting us contact you. Would you like to set up an appointment with Michael to build a financial plan or whatever they were most interested in? Interesting. So you actually don't take that, that call, that prospect referral inquiry, that's a client service associate whose job is to do the follow-up. Because I guess in, in I, I mean, I think for a lot of us, like the gut impulse is as advisors, we always return those calls because like this is, this is a sales opportunity. Like this is a business development opportunity. A little bit different perhaps in a credit union environment because the odd, like the odds that person is going to make the appointment with the client service associate is incredibly sky high because 
They already trust the credit union. They asked for the service from the credit union. The credit union referred it internally to people at the credit union. And someone, quote, from the credit union is calling back to follow up to schedule the appointment. So it's pretty natural for them to schedule that first appointment without a lot of sales effort at that point. Exactly. And we don't get a lot of drop-off. If we get a referral, most likely someone's going to answer the phone. It's uh, not very common for that uh, to drop off at that point of the cycle. And so so that I ultimately is, I think, even part of the efficiency opportunity then is you actually don't have to do the same level of initial outreach and follow-up work even when prospects come in because, again, you're carrying the trust of the credit union. And so when a service associate calls up and says, hey, I'm you know, following up to schedule your appointment with, with Michael, like people are just taking that call and most of them are saying, well, yeah, of course, because I, I was expecting your call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. And sometimes we have members who work in one area but live in another area and maybe they want to meet at the branch that's close to home versus the branch that's close to work. And so the client associate just makes sure that this is going to be the most convenient location for them to have that follow-up meeting. And so how many how many members are at the credit union in the aggregate? When you got like 1.6 billion of deposits, how many how many people is that? The last time I checked, it was about 120,000. About 120,000. Yeah, it's a, it's a large pool. And yeah, I mean that's a monster. <laughs> that's a monstrous pool. Or like just yeah. you know, if you can uh, if you can someday get one percent of that pool, like that's twelve hundred clients. <laughs> That'll keep you busy for a while. Right, and right now we're working with about one thousand eight hundred. So we we already have a lot of of clients on the books, and we're we're trying to build that up even more. Interesting. So you get these internal referrals that that cross over, and so like a, a someone in the individual branch, you get an opportunity to train them around how to ask questions to understand if someone maybe has some financial advice needs beyond the basic banking stuff. If they do, it comes over as an internal referral. If it does, you schedule a follow up call, or the client service associate schedules a follow up call to make a first appointment. And then what happens? Like, how does this process work for trying to get someone on board and close them? Yeah. So the the person comes in, we see what they're assess the needs. Hopefully that's to build a financial plan. We do the the fact-finding appointment at that point. Usually it's complex enough where we'll want to circle back with a delivery appointment of the plan. And then, you know, actually ask for the business at that point and see if we could transfer the accounts and set up anything that they would may need to do on the asset management side. So, so meeting, I'll make sure I follow this. So like a, a, an inquiry goes out or like referral comes in, you do a follow-up call to schedule an appointment. That first appointment is essentially trying to do initial round of data gathering on the spot, understand some of the needs and concerns and the situation meeting number two, then like from meeting number one, you're actually going to create a financial plan and money guide pro meeting number two is going to go right into presenting that plan. Here are some observations. Here are some recommendations we have. And you know, if we're able to help you with this, we'd love to start working with you from here. Yeah, exactly. Money guide pro. I usually do a pretty interactive presentation of that live so that if we want to change any of the data, I could do that right on the fly. 
And then in addition to that, I usually do like a, a risk analysis with Riskalyze to show the client if they have existing assets, this is how you're currently positioned. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe that doesn't make sense based on what your financial plan says now. Right. So you got the opportunity for, okay, we just went through the planning process. You know, it, you know, it looks like you only need to take a moderate level of risk to make this retirement plan work. Let's put you through a risk tolerance evaluation with risk allies. Okay. This confirms like you're actually a fairly conservative client. Okay. Now let's take a look at your portfolio. Oh, okay. It's completely out of whack with all of this. We need to start making some adjustments. Can we help you with that? Yeah. And I've had some clients where one spouse is saying, oh no, we're, we're very conservative. And then the other spouses, we're very conservative. And then I show them the portfolio and it's definitely not very conservative. <laughs> and it, it, they look at each other like, we, who who made it so risky? And it, it's good to to bring up those conversations because a lot of times they they don't know they have issues until until you tell them. Right. So what is like what does a plan look like in a firm like yours? When just I'm presuming you got a fairly high volume of these that you have to go through, so you don't necessarily have the time to do the sort of traditional like twenty hours construct a detailed plan and write up all this analysis and recommendations, or, or, or maybe you do. Like, what what does a plan deliverable look like in, in an environment like yours? And you know, a lot of the clients I work with are mass affluent, and they're employees, not business owners. So the complexity isn't always as great as, as you might think. Mm. A lot of times they own a property or two, they have bank accounts, credit union accounts, they have maybe some insurance policies and some retirement accounts. And that's usually the, the bulk of it. So using Money Guide Pro, I'm able to you know show that goals, show those resources and make those projections and that's usually a good enough of a deliverable when then I could put in, okay, here's like our action items. Like this is what we need to work on. This is the order of operations. And from there, we can know what we need to do by our next meeting or our next follow-up or review meeting. And I guess that's, it's worth recognizing as well. Like that's part of the value of doing planning work more interactively with clients. Like when you put your know, Money Guide Pro and Play Zone up on the screen is you know, like if people want to look at a situation, you know, if people want to see where they stand, like here it is, it's on the screen. Oh, you got questions about some other options that you're considering? Like, let's just look at them and see. And like, I I don't need to prep and print and produce, you know, and spend a couple of hours creating like three different what if scenarios and all the way down the rabbit trail of what happens if you do this or you do that, or you do this other thing. Like we just put it on the screen and see. And if you want to look at half a dozen different scenarios, it takes all about five minutes to just move the sliders around and look at the different scenarios. And just from a time efficiency perspective, you start saving a lot of time in the plan construction and delivery process when you can just queue up the plan that way. And a lot of my clients don't even ask for a hard copy deliverable. They know that I, I tell them this is a living, breathing document that's going to be on you know, all my systems. And they know every time that we get together, it's updated with their latest balances. And if there's new concerns, we'll run it live again and see if anything changes. That's satisfactory to to my clients. And remind me again, so you have... I think you said 260 million of assets under management, and I think you said 1,800 clients. Yes. 
So I'm doing the math here and like that's about $150,000 of average assets per client. Obviously, net worth is a little bit higher because the house and bank accounts and some other things. But I think, again, as you said, sort of helpful for context, like that's squarely in the mass affluent end, sort of the lower half of the mass affluent end, which is classically $100,000 to to a million dollars. And so as as you noted, like there's not a necessarily a lot of complexity of analysis here. I would imagine for a lot of them, it's just they've literally never sit down and seen projected numbers before to understand whether their you know current path is on track, whether what they've saved and created is enough to support their lifestyle. And so you're just literally trying to show them like, does the math work or does the math not work? And then who is going to be stewarding these assets for you while you're on that retirement journey? Can we help? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we have a lot of clients that wouldn't even be considered like financial planning clients. You know, they, they opened up an IRA eight years ago with $5,000 and they haven't come back in since. So we, we have some of that too. So it kind of skews that average balance right, right. lower. But I would say our, our typical client usually invests about 250,000. That's that's when we start getting into like the planning space or if they're nearing retirement that that usually is like an automatic qualifier for kind of doing that assessment to see if there's anything that they weren't thinking of. You know, to make sure that the financially retiring is going to be as easy as they may think. Right. And so most of just thinking like sheer volume here. I mean just 1800 clients over 10 odd years that you say you that you've been doing this is still like that's about 180 clients a year it's like three plus clients a week 50 weeks a year like that's just that's a lot of client flow like that's in a world where a lot of advisors start their firms from scratch it's like i had a two client month this was an awesome month like you're running at a pace of three new clients a week at infinitum for a decade and that's a, that's fair. That's that's what it's been. It's a different world. People sit down with you, planning to do business, and they they become clients fairly easily. So that's when it starts getting to like segmentation. You know, not everyone can have the same level of service. So you have to kind of segment it out, and not everyone needs a level of service that's going to be financial planning. Right. But that your your upper end clients, you know, they're million dollar plus investable assets. You know, they're they're going to need that extra hand holding. They're going to need to, you know, you're going to need to be able to compete with any other advisor that they're going to be talking to. So I'm, I'm struck by that as well. That just this whole phenomenon of of the the range and breadth of clients. You know, as as you've noted, like you try to address this with segmentation. I mean, I think for a lot of advisors out there, the way we ultimately manage this is just we we create minimums. Like we don't. <laughs> We don't work with clients under X dollars because it's hard to, you know, it's it's hard to be profitable in the time as the advisor, or just it's hard to even get those clients in the first place. So if we're only going to get a limited number of clients, we may as well focus on ones that are a little further up market and and can pay more of the bills. You in the credit union environment, like do you even have the option of setting higher minimums and not working with certain members? You you could as long as someone else was going to service those members. So you, we wouldn't ever turn anyone away, but the advisor... So like you personally might not 
have to within the SoCal wealth management, but only because you got to hire someone else in the firm who does. Like you can, yes, you can segment your personal workload, but as this advisory business attached to a credit union, like you are obligated essentially to take everyone. And and it should be that way because we're here to service the members once again. And, you know, we have a, a saying at the credit union that there's a story behind every face. And yeah, I like it going into my prospect meetings, not knowing if this is a high net worth client or not, just because I want to treat everyone the same way. And it's a, it's been a powerful thing to treat someone who you know, wants to start an IRA from scratch the same way that we treat someone who has a multi-million dollar rollover. So I'm just wondering, how does that, I mean, just how does that conversation go? Because that, I mean, that is such a, a broad juxtaposition, particularly if you're trying to go into prospect meetings and like not prejudge people by the interaction or their, or their appearance or however they're showing up in your office when like literally you could, like the next person you sit down with could be a $5,000 account or a million dollar account and you have to take everyone no matter what and you're trying to be appropriately respectful to everyone no matter what. But there's just this enormous range of who you're serving. Like, how does that go? I mean, do you try to pre-qualify these things? Do you try to clarify this in advance? Like, how do you suss out to figure out what kind of conversation you're supposed to be having? And so, so we do a little bit of that. So when we get the referral, we'll make sure that someone's not coming to us because they thought that we can help them with like debt consolidation or filing their tax returns because we don't do things like that. So we do like an initial level, is this someone looking to build a financial plan? And we've trained the staff to know what that looks and feels like. So that that's the first layer of kind of quality control when you say staff is is sort of trained in trying to identify that, is that essentially the the client service associate when they do that follow-up call when the referral comes in is just asking a few questions like, hey, can you just, you know, I'm going to schedule you with Michael. Can you just let us know a little bit more about what you're looking for and how we can help so that the member at least has an opportunity to say like, oh yeah, I really need help with this credit card consolidation. You can say, oh, actually that's probably not the best fit for that's, us. That's a different department. <laughs> that's a different department. So, yeah. And, and sometimes that does happen. You know, that's the, that's kind of like the, the downside of working at an institution, like a credit union, you're going to get a little bit of everything, you know, but you're going to get the, as long as you're getting the good accounts and the great clients along with some of the, the lower end clients, it's it's something that like personally I'm totally fine with because I like talking with everybody. And so you have to serve everyone in some way, shape, or form when they when they come in. But as you noted, like segmentation is crucial. And, and I guess when you get to segment, like you're you're allowed to do that. I, I mean, what does segmentation look like in practice for you? What do you segment in that you can do for certain clients, but not do for others? And where do you draw those lines? It, it, it has to come down to actual in-person touch points versus things like uh, social events or our emails that we send out, things like that. So, you know, like a, a top-end client is going to get face-to-face interaction anytime they want. We call out proactively for reviews. We invite them to our social events I I try and have as much fun with the clients as possible. So I like rent out a movie theater and give four tickets to top clients so that they could bring 
their kids or grandkids. Mm. I did uh, a harbor cruise, a cocktail cruise in uh, Newport Beach last year. That went over really well. So try, trying to have more non-financial socializing type of events with clients is a lot of fun. And they, they enjoy it too. And that helps build that relationship. So that's what top clients get. And, and what, is, what is top for you? Like where would that threshold be for you? <laughs> I, I've gone back and forth on that. Dollar amount wise, it's probably anyone over like six hundred thousand dollars. But okay. it, it it really comes down to who I enjoy doing business with the most because not everyone has retired, right? So sure, you you can you always get your subset of clients. So like this is not technically a high revenue, high asset client now, but they're going to be soon. They're on a good track. They refer us a lot of good people. They're a good center of influence. Like there's always some some exactly. other folks who may otherwise work into the into the list. Yes. Okay. So then what's the what's the next tier down? Like how do you handle them? So they, you know, obviously can have access to an advisor, but usually they would proactively have to call us. And so if you need to have a meeting, we'll schedule you with the next available advisor if you don't have a preference of someone and we go over whatever concerns that you may have. Okay. From there. Okay. And so there's not necessarily a like, hey, we're calling to meet with you twice a year or even necessarily once a year. If you've got to do your due diligence check-in, I'm presuming they probably get a letter. Has anything changed in your financial situation? Mm-hmm. But like you're not, you, you don't reach out to them for meetings. You let them reach out to you and they don't necessarily get a dedicated advisor. They get the next available advisor. Yeah. And we kind of leave it up to them as well. If they've met with someone in the past and they'd like to meet with them again, of course, that's that's no problem. Yeah, the the advisors usually like to work with the same people, obviously. So well, yeah, it's easier on us. So just, you know, when you gotta learn the person new and cold every time in a meeting, it's it's it slows down productivity for everyone compared to an advisor. You know, if you've worked with a client before, even if you have a lot of clients, you probably remember some stuff about them. They remember you. It just it's usually easier and faster for everyone to line up advisors again if it's feasible to do so. Mm-hmm. And you know, the longer tenure you have, you kind of stop having those lower-end clients. You stop taking referrals, and then you're kind of just left with that top segment of client book of business. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of service that. And that's when you, you, you can focus more on those like social outings and being being more about that service and experience part of the business. So is there a th- like a third tier and segment for you as well beyond just the like top and clients will reach out and and try to do all this stuff in the reviews and the social events the next tier like they have to call but then you know we'll meet with them next available advisor they can request a particular one if they want. Like is there is there a third step down or is that really the only two categories you run? That's really the only two categories. But on the advisor side, there's there's kind of like a career path here where you start by needing to 100% focus on referrals. And then you get to the point where you have a decent book of business and you're only semi taking on referrals. And then you basically graduate into, you know, let's call it a, a wealth advisor where you really aren't taking referrals at all anymore. And you're just managing your book of business. So that's like you saw with the amount of volume that you have with working at an institution, having three new clients a week, you could ramp up to that in you know five to seven years 
And after that, that's that's your now book of business that you get to operate with and get a little bit more work-life balance. Right. And and like what do you in that context, what do you view as a a full advisor when some clients you mean with a lot, some clients you mean with a little, some of them you just don't necessarily interact with much at all. You know, they they opened an IRA five years ago and you haven't heard from them since. Like what is full <laughs> yeah. where you don't really take on any new referrals anymore and they go to the next person down the line? Usually you'll look at their, their trailing 12 of an advisor. And if an advisor's to a level where they're satisfied with their advisory business and they're trailing 12 and they don't need to take on referrals anymore, nor do they want to, then then you can do that. My My business personally, I'm like probably a year away from that of just feeling satisfied with the amount of, you know, top end clients that I have and not wanting to take on referrals okay. and, and giving that to somebody new. That's, that's they, I need someone to replace me to take on that business and I'll have someone new in the branches to take on those referrals now going forward. Right. And, and so for you, it's not necessarily a client count, like, uh, you know, I can only handle a hundred clients or 200 clients or 500 clients. And then just, it's, it's too many phone calls. Can't handle it anymore from year end full is primarily just off of a, it's a personal income goal of the advisor. Like when, whenever you've got enough clients, enough trailing 12 revenue that after, you know, payout grids, you're getting the number that you want personally, then, then you're all good. Yeah, I, I think that's the best way to handle it because once again, you want to keep the control with the advisor. I've seen other programs that have tried to segment it by number of clients or number of branches and tried to give ultimatums to advisors and it has not worked out well at all. They feel like maybe they're not ready because of the income goal or maybe they feel that they just don't feel like they want to stop taking referrals so you have to work with the different personalities of, of your advisors and, and what they really want. Okay. And so how does payout structure work in this environment? Because I, like, I know classic, I mean, classic IBD, classic you know, independent LPL structure, like there's a direct payout off my grid. You know, I, because I don't know exactly where LPL's numbers are these days. So you know, most IBDs are somewhere in the like, low 80s to really low 90s by the time your production gets really high in, in payouts. So, you know, you do your gross, LPO gets a, a, a piece for all the services and tech and compliance and stuff that they provide. And then you, you net the rest as the advisor and then you've got to pay your own business expenses from there. So how does that work in a, in a firm like yours where like, it feels like there's sort of some extra call it hands in the cookie jar here because like the credit union at some point wants to participate in some economics as well. This is a business for them. Advisors still have to get paid. You've got this kind of intermediary layer of the SoCal wealth entity. So like how does the how do the dollars get carved up in a in a business like this when you get down to like what can an individual advisor earn or participate in the revenue that's being generated? Yeah. And we we take a there's two different parts to that because you know, we get advisors who come in from other firms and we treat that business differently than the business that was generated at the credit union. So yeah, a typical credit union grid uh, will be somewhere between like call it 30 and 45 bips of that grid. 
So anything that's referred from the credit union would be on that scale. However, any business or AUM that you've brought in from other firms would, we want to pay that more like as if you're independent. And so we will do a, a higher grid on that of 50 basis points plus, depending on, on the advisor to make that more competitive. And is that specifically for like clients I may bring if I join the this credit union advisory firm enterprise? Or is this like anything I developed that was not a credit union referral, I, I get to participate in a higher, a higher payout on? Yeah, anything that, that was uh, an existing client from your previous broker dealer that you bring to SoCal Wealth Management will will give you the higher payout on that. And then we just use what's called rep codes to to split off that business to make sure, sure. it's not commingled so we know what's producing what. So from the... So for to the extent I'm not coming to the table with an existing client base or just like, I, I want to build a career. I don't want to cold call. I don't want to go out there from scratch. I'm trying to figure out where to go, where to get clients. Credit union that sends me three a week at infinitum sounds fantastic. Like if that's the world I live in and then maybe I'll generate some business on the side because, you know, if you do this long enough, eventually people, you know, figure out what you do and some of them will ask for help. Like then I'm just, I'm living on a typical credit union grid. I'm getting 35 to 45% payouts, but like I'm not, I don't have to go out and beat the streets and do my own business development. Like those, those leads are flowing to me because that's part of the credit union structure. Right. And it's kind of up to the advisor, you know, how much they want to focus on each sides of that business. Some people have more of that built-in referral network. They're going to be doing more of that outside business, but you know, for people who are newer and trying to build up their AUM and don't have the network, the the credit union side is going to be what they're going to want to focus on. Well, and I would imagine, I mean, nothing negative to the credit union, but just if you've got a great natural market and natural base that you can go to market to, like you may just go elsewhere in the independent broker dealer world. Like if you if you got a base of prospective clients or the natural network to market to, like you have a number of choices about where you might go or what you might do. You know, if if that's not your thing or you don't have that natural network, you're not inclined towards that sort of business development, you know, being in an environment where there is an existing member base and there are existing referrals and they do flow steadily is very, very appealing. Like very, very appealing. But just, you know, you just have to accept that's part of the trade-off. Like you will not get the same kind of payouts that may exist at other on other platforms, but you don't have the same level of business development obligation or pressure, or just you don't have the same level of risk. Oh, absolutely. Because the credit unions providing your technology, your infrastructure, 401k, profit sharing, you know, there's a lot of benefits to not being a business owner on on the credit union side, that's going to compensate you for for picking this channel versus going direct independent. And LPL has helped me with some numbers to try and figure out. Like at the end of the day, yeah, obviously everyone's business is different. But what is your like effective payout when you go independent? And they they came to me with a number of about sixty three percent. So if we can be competitive with that number plus have all that infrastructure and built-in referral source, that's kind of when it makes a compelling argument to to pick this channel over anything else. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I just, I think of like, 
the classic advisory firm P&L, like even on the independent side, once you reach some level of scale, you know, if you think of like $100 of revenue at the top line, typically about 40% of that revenue goes to what we would call direct expenses, like advisors, investment team and management, like just doing the advice and investment management solution. And so you see a lot of advisors in large advisory firms, either they're paid percentages of revenue or they're paid salaries. But if you do the math, you find out their salary comes out something in the 30 to 40% of revenue range. You know, Then you may have 35% overhead and you end out with about a 25% profit margin at that point. If you're a smaller solo advisor, you usually don't make the distinction between like paying yourself a salary and what you keep as a profit. But if I just take 100 cents on the dollar and I subtract out typical overhead, which once a firm reaches critical mass is usually around 35% plus or minus a little, like you would keep you would keep 65%. Yeah, like, that sounds that's, about right. That's, yeah, I mean, that's that's about where it ends up. And what you end out with is essentially, you know, of that 65%, 30 to 40 of it is what you get paid for doing the advice work. And 30% of it is is what you get paid for taking the risk <laughs> of going out and starting your own firm from scratch and needing to get the clients and needing to build the infrastructure and needing to figure out the tech and the platform and all the rest of the stuff. And so, you know, if you're entrepreneur inclined, you get you take some risk and you get some reward on that risk. But, you know, the the core portion that goes out for advisors doing advisor work when firms hand them leads Ironically to me, like what you describe in the credit union environment is not actually that different from what you usually end out with in almost any advisory firm if you if you actually deconstruct their profit and loss statement. And and we're trying to do that by design. You know, the the greatest risk to the program would be advisor attrition. So why why would an advisor leave? Well, maybe they're looking to take on more entrepreneurship or maybe a buyer a better payout or something. So we just need to be able to take that payout argument off the table the best that we can. And by by treating the business differently, that seemed to be a really good way to do that. So so talk to us a little bit more of of what happens on that end. Like what happens when I join the credit union and I build this client base because the referrals are are coming over and it's doing what it's supposed to do. But I eventually do get to some point, hey, you know, 10 years in my career, I feel a little bit differently about being an independent or a business owner than I did before. I've got, you know, more connections in my community. I'm established as a financial advisor. Like I, I'm sort of thinking maybe now I actually do want to go out on my own. Like what happens if someone leaves or wants to leave? Like what happens to the 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 clients? Who owns them? Like are there non-competes or non-solicits? Uh how does it work on the other end if someone is not staying? Yeah. So another reason why we separate the businesses is if you're coming to us with business and it's in that personal rep code, that's your business. And we don't we don't go after that. But anything on the credit union side that came from credit union referral, that is our business. And we would expect that to stay. I've, I've only had one advisor leave SoCal Wealth Management and there wasn't they didn't bring in anything and they didn't do much production. So it wasn't ever an issue. Right. Uh, so sometimes these things just don't work out at all. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Ne- never really encountered it, an issue with that. And once again, the reason why I treat it separately is so I hopefully don't have to run into that, that type of situation. And the, one of my big 
projects for this year is to put actual succession plans in place for my advisors because if, if an advisor is going to build up a business for 10 years and feel like they need to go somewhere else to to unlock the value of it, I think we should be we should be the one writing that check versus some other broker dealer or RA or something like that. So so help me understand you, you kind of frame this as sort of two types of business. There's you came to us with existing clients because you you left another broker dealer or whatever. Like those go under a personal rep code for you. If you leave, those just those go with you and you get a different payout on them along the way. Anything that comes through the credit union is a referral. That's the credit union's business. So I'm presuming like there's a non-solicit or non-accept thing that's attached to the employment agreement that says you're not supposed to take those clients with you. Which doesn't hold a lot of water in California where we're located. Oh, right. <laughs> but yes, we, we do have those on file. You know, once again, it's if my credit union in particular knows that the advisor owns the relationship no matter what. So you could try and put these legal documents in place, but at the end of the day, if an advisor is going to leave, they're, they're going to take their business with them. One advisor that I hired last year basically took his entire business with him from another credit union and they don't have much of a program anymore because even though he was an employee of that credit union and had a, a non-compete, those clients reached out to him to, to stay with him and it, it all came with them. So, I mean, as the program manager running your credit union program, like does, does this concern you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and that's why I want to do everything in my power to make sure that my advisors feel like they could, they don't need to leave to unlock the value of, of their business here, you know, be, be and the credit union gets that too. They understand that, you know, even if they are less profitable, it's worth it to make sure that we don't have advisor attrition and that every, everyone's happy. But I mean, what does that look like in practice? Like you would literally offer buyouts to advisors, like, Hey, even though we you like gave you these clients and refer them to you. We'll also buy them from you. I mean, just what do you, where, what are you thinking of doing in practice to try to, as as you put, like let let advisors unlock some of that value without feeling the need to leave to do so. Something to that effect. I haven't been able to set up anything yet because I haven't focused on it. But yeah. between LPL and the credit union, I think we're going to get some type of yeah a deal in place where there would be some uh, payout mm-hmm. for retirement. LPL has some calculators and ways to kind of evaluate businesses. You know, for example, like let's say we were able to put something in place that said if you have this much tenure with the company right. and you retire, we'll give you a one point four percent payout on your trailing twelve or you know, something like that. I think would be fair. All right, and so I guess that's a version of like, look, you like if if you're leaving and try to go somewhere else. You're you're taking your business or competing with the business, but at least creating the environment of look. If what you're concerned about and going independent or elsewhere is like you wanted to build a thing where you could sell it and get a check at the end when you retire. Like we'll give you a check when you retire. Like we'll yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you an internal retention payout check. Just you know, work with the next generation advisor to hand your clients off whenever it is you're leaving. Agree to not go somewhere else and take the clients after you get the payout. But like, if you just, if you want to stay with us until the end and wind down with us, like there will be a payout for you. You don't have to move the book elsewhere to try to monetize it. 
you know, we call people who work for the credit union, not employees, but team members, right? We're also members of the credit union. So we, we treat, we treat ourselves with that service first mentality. What's the right thing to do here? You know, well, the right thing for the credit union to do is make sure that we don't lose advisors and keep the business here. And the right thing for the advisors to make sure that they're doing the best they can and serving their member clients. And so this kind of helps everyone keep it together. And so what about kind of the, because I'm thinking of it, the, the third category of clients. So there's, you know, I already had them when I came to the credit union. Those are mine stand on my rep code. There's clients that get referred to me from the credit union. Like those are clearly credit union clients came through the credit union referral channels. Then there's like the clients I get myself outside of the credit union channel and pathway because I'm an advisor and I'm building my network or establishing myself in the broader community. And I, I start getting my own clients. Like, can you have personal clients that you are still allowed to take with you in this environment or just if it's not something you brought in from day one with you nothing else is under your personal rep code all this is as a representative of the credit union so these are all credit union clients no that would be that would be the third style would be a non if they're not a member of the credit union they're a personal client so if you you went to the Rotary meeting and built up a network and you, or you're getting businesses to invest with you, then you that those are your personal clients. And so those are also ones like I get personal rep code, I get higher payout, and and those I'm allowed to take with me if I if I leave like exactly no no offense taken I don't get in trouble for that. The only expectation is literally like if they're credit union members and you represented the credit union and we handed them to you as a credit union representative, like those really should stay with the credit union. Please. Right. <laughs> and and that sounds like the fair thing to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I think so. so. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting to me that just, there's been a lot of, or I guess growing hubbub in the industry these days about firms that go after advisors who leave, you know, not just, you know, there's always been some of that at wirehouses and some big banks there's more of it now in the RIA channel, but I feel like there's been some particularly high-profile stuff lately at at some of the retail brokerage firms that have been building out wealth management. So, like the the retail Fidelity, the retail Schwab, and Schwab in particular has been hit a bunch in the headlines lately for pursuing, sometimes aggressively pursuing brokers who were you know retail advisors, retail financial consultants at Schwab who who left and took clients with them, and Schwab pursued them. And, you know, look, in general, like I'm all for advisor mobility and not limiting advisors' ability to, to move around and run their businesses. But it strikes me, even in firms like that, there's sort of a similar parallel of like, Schwab's also spends on whatever is a billion dollars a year on marketing, <laughs> you know, to bring in all these clients, to bring in all these assets, to make people walk into Schwab branches and say they want to do business with Schwab that, you know, I... I I have actually a lot of sympathy for just firms that say, look, if we actually figure out how to organically generate clients on behalf of our advisors and hand them to the advisors to service, like the advisors should respect the firm that those are the firm's clients. You know, the flip side, I think, is for the firm to say, but if you're actually going out and getting your own clients, maybe those should be your own clients because you're not getting them from the firm's organic marketing process. But in practice, I find very few seem to make that distinction. It's either everything is the advisor's client or everything is the firm's client. Like I actually have a lot of respect and appreciation for 
what you've built here, although I think it's probably particularly easy or straightforward in the credit union environment because there's a really clear dividing line. Like at the end of the day, either they're a credit union member or not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if they are, it's credit union member. If they're not, they're not, right? It's, It's harder in the context of some other firms like you know, if I'm at Schwab and they've got a giant brand name and someone decides to work with me for my personal network, like how much did the name, the Schwab name on my business card matter? Like, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever be able to untangle that and figure out, was that a Schwab lead you got or a lead you got and you happen to be at Schwab? But the credit union, it's a pretty straightforward line. Like they're either a credit union member or they're not. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you could have, you know, since we're like a regional credit union, if I have clients outside of the membership, it's really easy to tell, you know. So it's it, that dividing line is pretty clear. And if you want advisors to be out there marketing and building their businesses, you're still going to get some revenue while while yep. they're here. So, you know, my job if I'm doing yep. it right, is going to only attract advisors, not have anyone start looking out the window at, oh, wow, I could do this on my own and the grass will be greener. So you, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that like, there are some banks and even some credit unions that did the, you know, call like the, the less client-centric, the less member-centric approach to this. Like, it was a quote profit center. Like it was more, it was a way to make more money off their existing assets than what they're already doing by cross-selling products to existing bank customers, often at, at volume, often with high commission products, because just it's what made money for the bank. You you get firms at the other end of the spectrum like yours that are really building a member-centric approach. You've got to do it in a particular way because of the sheer volume and and the level of client, but you get to build it in that context. So for an advisor who's out there and hearing this and is like, okay, this sounds awesome, but I don't know whether my local credit union that has a job listed on their website is like the good kind in your category or the bad kind in the other category. <laughs> like, how do you figure this out as an advisor, which type of credit union you're talking to or looking at or considering to apply with? Yeah, and that's that's the toughest part right now because it, it's hard to tell. And you you know when you go in for an interview, you have to be interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And you just need to hopefully find a company that's going to give you that flexibility to run the business the way you want. The more that they're kind of telling you what to do, that'd be a red flag. The more that they're trying to tell you like these are the type of products that you need to have, or if there's uh, pretty strict limitations to, or uh, goals or hurdles that you're going to have to hit, that's that's a problem, right? You want a credit union or institution that's going to tell you, do right by your members, do good business for them, and the rest will follow. And so, I mean, can can you ask that point blank in a, in an interview? Like, how would you how would you suss that out if you're in interview process and trying to figure this out. Yeah, I, I guess I would try and ask as much about what is the day-to-day like, you know, what is what's going to be expected of you as an advisor. If they come to you with, you know, a grid of like we expect this much in production and this much in net new assets and all that, that's good to a certain extent. But you know, if they came to you with, we want to make sure that you're focusing on financial planning. 
you know, or if we want to make sure that you have high service scores when we do, you know, re, when we reach out to your, your clients, you know, that that's kind of telling a different story, right? So the way that they're approaching you as a hire shouldn't be because they're trying to expand their, their profitability. I mean, they, they will be, but you know, if they frame it like that to you, that's a problem. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting distinction of just, yeah, look, I mean, any business is going to have some metrics at the end of the day that they want to achieve. If they have no idea what the metrics for success are, that's actually not a good sign of itself, right. the viability of the business. But when you start saying like, you know, what am I going to be judged and evaluated on? There's a big difference between, you know, we have to see this level of production and net new assets versus, well, first we want to see that you get high service scores from the members. Yes. Yeah. Always number one for me is service scores and then activity. I don't care how much money you're bringing in or what you're producing, but are you sitting in at least three appointments a day with people and trying to get some financial plans done? That that activity level, as we know, is going to turn into your book of business. And as long as you're doing that, you're you're going to be in good shape. So what surprised you the most about trying to build within a credit union environment? Because surprise was I can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I guess my my initial concern coming from a wirehouse was is this going to be my business? And I definitely can say that the business that I built is is my business at at the credit union. It's it's one and the same. And I was nervous that, you know, coming off the financial crisis, is this going to be another situation where maybe the rug is pulled out from under me and it's it's not that at all and that might be my particular situation but that was a concern i had early on that that's been alleviated so i was going to say like is is that a is that a credit union thing or is that you, like a your credit union thing yeah, that, that that you were able to to find that or or find a, a credit union or or credit union leadership that was supportive of that it, it definitely was unique to me because I know other advisors who have not been in good credit unions. I had one that I know of that their credit union was not paying for their parking and he was coming out of pocket $150 a month just to go to work. You know, that's that's showing that you're not on the same side of the table yep. <laughs> for that. I had another advisor where they didn't do any marketing for him. He was there, but they no one knew that he was there to help because they were focusing on all their other products and services that didn't work out well for him. You know? So I guess the, the biggest surprise is that the amount of support that I've had has only grown more with time. Interesting. So in, in practice, I guess just asking, well, as you said earlier, like asking what the day to day is, is like, but also just asking like, I guess basically what, what, what is your process for, marketing me as an advisor or generating referrals within the credit union and just trying to suss out like do they have a good answer does it sound like it's really going to work can you you know talk to other advisors there and see if they've are actually getting the referrals the way the credit union makes out to just try to clarify whether they really actually send you business yeah that that's that's a good way to do that and i guess one of the risks with being tied in with an institution is that can change Right. You know, if, if you, there could be a change in management and then right. their views of the the wealth management division can change as well. And that that can create a concern for an advisor. 
So what is a what is a typical week look like for you at this point? For me, typical week is I have usually three appointments a day and I usually meet with one or two reviews of financial plans or presenting, delivering a new financial plan for clients. About a third of my time is doing operational, running the program type of tasks, making sure that my advisors have everything that they need to be successful. In terms of outbound marketing, I really don't do any at this point. It's all through the credit union. I don't have to go through my my personal network to drive business that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that that's basically my my whole week. And and just like Monday through Friday, every day is just like three three appointments plus one or two, you know, reviews or delivery of plans, and like it's just a it's just a regular steady drumbeat. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, and that's part of what I value too. You know, I have a a young daughter and my wife, you know, I, I like work-life balance. So I'm not looking to be in the office on Saturday or, you know, having 12 hour days at this point. How has your role at the firm changed over the years? Like, is it, it, was it always like this? Has it shifted over, over 10 years of being there? It's definitely shifted early on. Before I was with LPL, we were at a a smaller broker-dealer where the management of the department was outsourced to that broker-dealer. And it was much more about GDC and trying to grow the program with bringing in advisors, whether there was a true opportunity for some to thrive or not. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of got to an inflection point where it was like, I need to kind of take control of this. And that's that's when I took on not just the advisor role, but also the program manager role where I was able to kind of build this up at, at the right pace and bring on advisors as, as as the opportunity was really there. Interesting. So the, that was a shift, I guess, for the credit union from subbing out somewhere else to then subbing out to LPL and and shifting the management of that from the external broker dealer to the internal people in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know, like I said when you're working with credit unions, especially on the smaller end of institutions, a lot of times they'll outsource basically everything they can to keep the expenses low, right? right. So <laughs> variable expense, yeah. outsource variable expense is a glorious thing in the startup phase. Yep. You got you see the trend now, so mm-hmm. <laughs> But you know, it got to the point where it just made sense for, and and they luckily saw the the value to bring it in house, so that I could build it up at the right pace because all of our initiatives were aligned. I wanted to grow at the same pace as the credit union, not faster or slower. I guess again that that sort of reemphasizes that the you just what the what the philosophy and management is of an advisory business within a credit union really matters, right? Like lo and behold, when it was actually run by the external broker dealer, they were kind of focused on broker dealer production. When it gets run internally at the credit union, lo and behold, they're kind of take the credit union member centric philosophy. Yeah. It, it was simple as that. And having that mindset of member first and really focusing on that. Sure. Could we have grown faster and could I have more advisors by now? Of course, but would 
my advisors be as successful as they individually are as now? Probably not. And that's more important to me as an advisor first and a manager second. I want to make sure everyone's thriving with their businesses. Once again, because the last thing I want is attrition. I don't want to have to fill a seat for someone who felt like they needed to leave. So what was the, was the low point for you on this journey? The hardest part was being managed early on, like the first five years. It was, you know, we were just coming off the financial crisis. So everyone was feeling the next 5% correction was going to be the big one. And right. money wasn't in, in motion as much. And then the fact that they did, the, the former broker dealer did try and put in advisors and kind of try and take away business from me. That's the, the wrong way to approach you know, they said, you'll grow your business by us taking your clients. <laughs> Obviously, that's not something any advisor wants to hear. Well, because then you'll be, then you'll be desperate and hungry. So you want to go yeah. on the new ones, right? <laughs> like- exactly. So th- that's not the way to treat that. And, you know, eventually, uh, like I said, now, now I, I see it that I want my advisors to get to a critical mass where they don't want to take referrals, but I want them to say that. I don't want to take away anyone's business, but there is a way to set this up where you start having associate advisors below you. They build their own business. They go off on their own right. and become wealth, wealth managers. And you just continue with that graduation path. All right. But I, again, just to me, just sort of further reinforces like the local management and local leadership and overall philosophy of, of that wealth management platform like is this a members first credit union offering is this a just a profit center is this a broker dealer run thing for add-on revenue like who's running that and what that structure is and what their guiding philosophy is really does carry up and down across a wealth management offering in a credit union yeah i agree yeah so any anything you wish you'd done differently in this path over the past 10 years, like eh, anything, you know, now you wish you could go tell you from 2010 as you were getting started on this. <laughs> I guess. And I've heard this from other advisors as well, that going to ad- advisory transitioning to advisory sooner would, hmm. would have been helpful. I was basically 100% transactional for like the first five years. And part of that was because I wasn't in control. I wasn't the manager and I felt like that carried more risk to it. But then if I was able to know what it was going to be today, yeah, I would have, I would have been more on an advisory path earlier in my career. Just because then you could have built the, the AUM base and the recurring revenue for, for longer with more track record. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I would have already had an associate advisor or two at this point if I, if I started earlier. Okay. So what advice would you give younger advisors, or I guess even to say newer advisors, because some people career change in at a, at a later age and stage, like what would you, what advice would you give newer advisors looking to, to come in the industry today? If they're, if they're thinking about this credit union channel? Yeah. I mean, first piece of advice is to make sure that when you're, you're building your business, you're building it with some type of expertise. So uh, whether that's a company that is partnered with your credit union and you can be an, ex- an expert in their retirement plan, you know, something that's going to help drive 
that referral business outside of what's the credit union offering you. Um, because those, those clients tend to be the ones that refer you their friends and, and really build up that top segment part of your book. It's something that I've seen in the credit union world most of the top advisors have some something like that where they're they have an expertise in a certain plan something something that you can become known for even when it's internal referrals mm-hmm. you know oh we got seven advisors over in our wealth management team but like you oh but you have a bunch of issues with the employer retirement plan like you need to call michael about this and yeah. so now like you're getting particular referrals and obviously if you pick an expertise of something that tends to be associated with more money and wealth, that probably means you're going to end up disproportionately getting the better referrals, the higher end referrals, and then building a client base with higher end clients who tend to refer other higher end clients. So having some way to distinguish your and differentiate your expertise. Yeah, that that will help build the business faster, which is you know what everyone in who's in the growth stage of their career is really looking for. Yeah. Well, which to me is is a striking thing. Like we we certainly talk about this a lot on the podcast in in the independent advisor context, like find a niche, form some kind of specialization, you know, have something that you can differentiate around and become known for. That just strikes me like that actually still matters even when you're in an employee environment or an internal environment or a place where referrals are flowing. Like there's still better referrals and not quite as good referrals. There's still an opportunity to draw business if, if only from other employees who might have gotten those referrals as well. And so it's still meaningful to create some kind of expertise, some kind of specialization, some way you can differentiate yourself to get opportunities to work with the kinds of clients you want to work with. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, the more that you could replicate the clients that are in your top segment, that's going to be better for you. That's better for them. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And I mean, one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. So you you spent the past 10 years building this you know, wealth management offering within a credit union to half a or excuse me, a quarter of a billion dollars. So had a, a an incredible run in building that business. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, it's it's definitely changed over the years. You know, early on it was how do I make this a profitable, successful business? At this point, success to me is going to be how am I going to leverage that for the next generation of advisors? You know, because there's there's so many obstacles to getting to cruising altitude with uh, setting up an advisory practice. That if I could help others get get to that level where they're successful, I, I know I'm I'm doing my job right. That's a, that's definitely successful for me. Oh, very cool. I love it. And uh, I would imagine there are even a few people that are listening saying, I, I wouldn't mind actually getting to do that on on your team. So uh, this is episode 163. So if you go to kidsis.com slash 163, we'll have contact information if you want to get in touch with Michael and pick his brain about finding a credit union opportunity that's a good fit. But I, Michael, like I love that just kind of pay it forward mentality. Like I've, you know, I found a path that worked for me. Now, how can we help? others find that positive path as well. Because as, as we said at the beginning, and just, you know, our industry pushes so many people into the, you know, here's a desk and a phone book, good luck getting some clients. Like we've had this deep cold calling culture for decades and decades that 
you know, just to be able to highlight, like there are other ways to do this. You know, some of the economics are a little bit different. You know, the, there is still the old saw, like if you want to take a slightly riskier path, you may get rewarded a little bit more for it. But not everybody wants to take that risky path. Some people, it's just not a good natural fit for them and their skill sets. And, you know, there are other ways to do this, as I, as I think you've highlighted. And, and hopefully we get to spread that word a little. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a great path for me. And like you said, there, there are higher risk, higher reward avenues for this. Not every advisor wants to be like that. And this is a great place to hang your hat if, if you don't need to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.